We've been going through a series on rediscovering uh, the importance of the resurrection in our lives, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'd like for us to listen to a, a wonderful song right now. It's a few years old, but it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a creed. It's called I, I Believe Creed. And actually in this creed, it just simply expresses the things that are crucial for us to believe in as Christians.
Well, I mean, a little bit of a long song, but a good song for us to remember, to really have that ingrained in our hearts of the, the truth of God's Word, of what Christ has accomplished and what God has revealed to us in His Word. Amen? Sometimes when I'm on my way to Kokomo every Thursday, generally it's Thursday when I go take care of my father, um, sometimes a two-hour drive gets a little... Sometimes I listen to podcasts, sometimes I listen to music, sometimes I get tired of listening to anything. <laughs> but uh, so many times I have, I have listened to that song and just uh, uh, had a, my own little sanctuary there in my little F-150, well, my big F-150, the greatest truck in the world. Uh, but uh, just to have a sanctuary there as I'm going down the road. Just thanking the Lord that He's revealed so much in His Word to us about who He is and how that, uh, and that, that knowledge is, makes us rich, so rich in our hearts, makes us so rich in our spirits that we know Him and that we can really know Him and that we can really know Him and be convinced that He's worth dying for and anything that would come against us that's what I want to talk to you about today is the importance of in this series of the importance of being convinced here the importance of being convinced about Jesus 2nd Timothy chapter 1 verses 6 to 12 is what we're going to read here interesting story here as a, um, a true account here of a guy named Lloyd C. Douglas, who was the author of the the the, uh, the book *The Robe*, which became a movie what, back in the 50s or 60s. He was a university student, and he lived in a boarding house. And he said, downstairs on the first floor was an elderly retired music teacher, now infirm and unable to really leave the apartment, the apartment that he lived in. Douglas said that every morning that they had a little ritual that they would go through together, that he would come down the steps and open the old man's door and ask, well, what's the good news today? The old man would pick up his tuning fork, tap it on the side of his wheelchair and say, that's middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It will be middle C tomorrow. It will be middle C a thousand years from now. The tenor upstairs sings flat. The piano across the hall is out of tune. But my friend, that is middle C. The old man had discovered one thing upon which he could depend, one constant reality in his life, one still point in a turning world. And for Christians, the one still point is this one absolute that there is no shadow of turning in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's read what Paul had to say to Timothy. It's Paul's last letter to, that he wrote um, in the New Testament. He was awaiting execution, actually, here in 2 Timothy. So this is his last letter that he wrote, and he's writing to his dear son, Timothy. He said uh, there in we're going to break in at verse 6. He says, For this reason, I want to remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but rather gives us power and love and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join me 
join with me in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God. For He has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And this gospel, uh, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. And that is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Lord, help us today as we look at this uh, truth, this importance of being convinced fully in our hearts about Jesus. I pray that you would help us today, Lord, to grow, to grow in our faith today, to grow more mature and to be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned last week that around the year, I don't know, 11 or 12 uh, of my journey with Christ as my Lord and Savior, I experienced a crisis that the Holy Spirit, I learned later, actually had veered me into. Uh, I wasn't uh, battling for someone else. I was actually, it was a personal battle uh, with doubt or with, uh, with a frustration of not knowing, I should say. Um, how did I really know the gospel of Jesus was really true? I mean, I'd been taught that all my life and since uh, I was just a small little guy. But how did I really, really know that the gospel was true. And I had not studied on that. I had not really pondered that question very much. And it was a crisis to me. It was actually terrifying to me. I was afraid. I thought, what if I come up short in understanding the, you know, why the gospel, or maybe what if I find out that it falls short? <laughs> I know that sounds silly, but you know, I, how did I really know the cross and the resurrection really mattered more uh, than what other religious beliefs professed? How do I really know? After all, John Lennon, he was, he was convinced that Hare Krishna, a form of Hinduism, he, he was convinced of that, that that was true. And he had had some experience with Christianity, but he had rejected Christ. So why, you know, what, what do I, how can I support my, my, my faith? You know, once mankind they have, has always devised efforts of trying to find God uh, or the ultimate reality for themselves. And I think we mentioned last week how Satan oftentimes proposes such efforts. I, I read there are over 4,000 religions in the world, 4,000 religions, and many of these crisscross and look kind of similar uh, with some slight, slight variations. But they range, of course, from Hinduism and Buddhism and Confucianism, Con Confucianism and, and New Age philosophies that exist in the Far East, that come from the Far East, to Judaism, Christianity, to Islam to voodoo, to the occult, and even now to what I would say is Darwinian evolution, which scientists deny, but it's true nonetheless. It has become a religion uh, amongst people. Uh, Darwinian evolution has. Um, someone said this. They, they, they said that religion is man's effort. It's man's effort to find God or an ultimate reality. It's a man's attempt to reach up or to, to reach out 
and to try to try to find something other than himself, to find some sort of ultimate ultimate reality beyond beyond himself. You know, um, it's guided by his own human weaknesses, his sinful weaknesses. And again, it's this, in this way, it's this from the bottom up. It's a methodology. Mankind trying to find something, find someone. But what makes Christianity, what makes Judaism uh, fundamentally different here is that um, it's not founded on the idea of man seeking a God, but it's actually God the Creator seeking man. It's Judaism and Christianity are the only two faiths in the world that have that as a methodology, that have that as a fundamental uh, principle uh, of its worldview. After Adam rebelled against the Creator and he hid from God, the first thing that God said to him was what? Adam, where are you? God is a seeking God. Our God, this God, this ultimate God, this almighty God. He is seeking us. Jesus talked about that. I'll give an illustration about how there was, you know, there was a hundred sheep, but one of them was missing. So he left the 99 and went what? Seeking the one that was lost. Our, our God is a seeking God. The Bible teaches us. Amen. What makes Judaism, Christianity unique is the fact that God didn't expect us to be able to find him. He didn't expect us to find him due to, of course, we know now the power of sin and death in our lives. He knew that we were spiritually dead um, in our sins, which means we were missing God's mark. We, were, we weren't up to his standard at all. And we were dead in our transgressions, the Bible says, because we were breakers of God's law. We were lawbreakers. So he knew we were dead spiritually because of those two things that we were guilty of. And that we would have no idea how to find him. How would we find him? We, we would have, have no idea we were helpless. And even if we did uh, stumble into his presence, uh, we wouldn't understand his holiness. We wouldn't know what to do. We'd, we'd, be, we'd, do, we'd do something stupid that we'd be destroyed. You know, like uh, the time, um, you know, um, Uzzah or Uzzah reached out and touched the ark of the presence of God and was struck dead. You remember the story there in 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, uh, where, where uh, David was transporting the ark of God, you know, trying to bring it to Jerusalem, and he was doing it the wrong way. It was supposed to be carried on poles, carried by the Levites, and David had placed it on an ox cart. And as they were celebrating and worshiping God, and they were, they were having a good time, the oxen stumbled. You remember the story, they count and how that the, the cart tilted and the Ark of the Covenant, that holy, the holiest thing on earth, was getting was sliding off and was going to fall into the dirt. And, and, and Uzzah, he reached out and he touched it. He steadied it, you know. And he, the Bible says he was struck dead immediately. Uzzah assumed that he was holier than the dirt that the Ark was going to fall into. He was wrong. Uzzah carelessly and presumptuously bumbled into God's presence and died. We don't know anything about God, loved ones, unless, unless he first of all reveals himself to us. And that is what makes Christianity 
and Judaism stand out among all the other world religions. It's a revealed truth. It's revealed faith that we believe in. It's from the top down, not from the bottom up. It's from the top down. It's not from man's efforts of finding God. It's from God's efforts of reaching out to us and finding us. Amen. That's a fundamental point, a fundamental truth of Christianity. However, at the age of 26, I was uh, wrestling with how to defend my faith when I wasn't sure I was convinced it could stand up against all these other religious claims about being the truth. I knew Jesus claimed to be the way and the truth and the life, and I knew he claimed to be the resurrection and the life, and he claimed to not be the inner light of Buddhism, but rather the light of the world. And so why did Jesus claim to be only the only way to the Heavenly Father who is uh, like the friendliest face we really want to see when we die, huh? That's what we want to see. We want to see, a, when we die, we want to see a friendly face in the face of God, you know, as, as we cross the home plate, so to speak, the eternal home plate. Um, that's what we want. But what made Jesus so special? What made him so special? When I say special, I mean so special that no matter who you are, no matter who you've been in human history, the Bible says you will kneel before this Jesus. He is that special. He is that unique. He is that, that big. He is that major that nobody else counts when it comes to things that matter. Only Jesus matter according to what the Bible says. Wow. On that day, all the efforts at trying to reach God other than his revealed way, our loved ones are going to be shown to be foolish and futile. However, I tell you, I needed some grit and maturity added to my discipleship in Jesus. So I began this adventure. And I mentioned to you last week that this adventure in apologetics, which is the defense or the proof of Christianity using like rational argument. So as I mentioned before, I didn't realize it then, but this was a key battle in my spiritual walk with, with the Lord back there in the, in the, in the early 80s there. Learning, learning why we know the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. Why we know the, the cross is true. Why we know why the cross is so significant. How it opens the doorway to everything that God has in store for us. And it, as well as the re resurrection. Um, how, we can, how we understand that, that the gospel of Jesus and all other, all other religions that claim to be true are merely just uh, uh, satanic substitutes compared to the gospel of Jesus. They offer these twisted versions of good that is not only evil but wind up deceiving people and leading them to eternal death. And again, like I mentioned last week, loved ones, that when we find the truth, truth really matters. The truth of God matters. It matters so much that it's necessary and we have to hold on to it. We have to cling to it and we have to be able to defend it. Now, this is where I want to talk to you about being an apologist. You don't have to be a, you know, if you're a serious follower of Jesus Christ, you, you, you know, you don't have to become a scholarly apologist. I'm not telling you that. But listen to me here. Every serious follower of Jesus must be convinced. This is what I learned. You must be convinced that you know that you know that you know that you know that you know. <laughs> that you know that you know that you know. <laughs> that you know that Jesus is real. You may, not, you may not know all the different 
principles and all the different theories, all the things that apologists deal with. A lot of ones, you have to come to that point in your life where you know who you have believed. <laughs> As we say in, this, in, in, the, in the song. That who you have believed and are convinced because you actually know Him. You know Him. And that He is able to securely hold your life safely. All that you are. All that you've done for Him. Hold you safely and securely against the judgments of God. Against that great day when we stand before God. Now this is crucial for us as we grow older. That the light of His intimate presence doesn't grow fainter, but rather grows brighter in your life. Yeah. We shouldn't be getting, and I don't mean this unkindly, we shouldn't be getting dumber. We ought to be getting smarter as we walk with Jesus. Amen? Oh, please amen me. Yeah. We shouldn't be getting dumber. We should be getting smarter. We shouldn't be getting this. Jesus shouldn't be getting fainter. He should be getting brighter because we're convinced because we know Him. And recall as a boy, you know, a lot of times singing that song there in east side of Kokomo on a Sunday morning, that song by a guy named D.W. Whittle. What a great name, Whittle, his last name. 1883 is when he wrote it, but you, you know the song. Yeah, you know, I know not why, God's wondrous grace to me is daily shown, or why, with mercy, Christ and love, redeem me for his own. I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. Verses 3 and 4. When I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing us of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him. I know not when my Lord may come, at night or noonday fair, nor if I'll walk the veil. I never knew what the veil was when I was a kid, so it just means valley. It means valley. If I'll walk the, the veil with him or meet him in the air. And you know, and you know, the, you know the refrain, you know the chorus. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Amen. The importance of being convinced is crucial in our understanding of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It depends, I tell you, our faith depends on it, that we are convinced of it. Or whenever the world is fighting against us and the devil's throwing everything he can at us, and no matter what it is, whether it be doubts or whether it be troubles or whether it be false religions or false philosophies or whatever it is, we have to come to this point in our lives where I know that I know that I know that my Redeemer lives. I know who He is. I'm convinced. I've entrusted myself, all that I am, into His welfare. In 2 Timothy, Paul is writing, again, his young co-worker here, whom he installed as a pastor there in the Ephesian church. Paul knows, again, that his time is very short here, that he's already being, he mentions later on in, that, in the book of 2 Timothy, he says, I'm already being poured out, Timothy, like a drink offering. And um, I've fought the good fight, Timothy. I've, uh, I've uh, finished the race. I've kept the faith. And that means I've obeyed the doctrines of Scripture. I've obeyed the, the doctrines of the Lord. 
And this will be his final imprisonment for the Lord. This is, his death is near. So this is his last communication that he has. On July 18th in the year 64 AD, the city of Rome caught fire and soon spread out of control. And like all the many conspiracy theories, for example, surrounding, like for instance, the assassination, the assassination of President Kennedy, in a similar way, there's many conspiracies that surround the fire of Rome that took place back then. Rome was a ginormous city and uh, it caught fire. The Emperor Nero had been uh, emperor for, oh, about 10 years or so. He came to power in, in 54 AD at the age of 17. And at that time, he had a lot of advisors. He, he, he listened to these advisors because he was humble. But then somewhere along the line, he kind of got cocky and he said, I don't need you guys anymore. And so he started doing things his way and started kind of acting more like a dictator than he was uh, and, you know, the emperor. But uh, he, he wanted to make, uh, he, he wanted to rebuild Rome in his own image. And so he's, he couldn't do that with uh, because the, the Roman Senate tended to stop him from doing that. He wanted to change things, but the Senate wouldn't let him. So he wanted to bypass the Senate. So he hired some men to set the, the, the city on fire. The city burned for six days. The city of Rome burned for six days. And, and then they finally got the fire under control. And they thought it was out, but then it reignited again, and it burned for another three days, destroying 71% of Rome, the historians say. 71% of Rome was destroyed. Nero, he became a hero, though. Nero the hero. That's kind of, I, just, I just got it. I just got that. Yeah, isn't that cool? Nero became a hero as he allocated funding to people in order to rebuild their homes as well as their businesses. So he wanted to make himself a big shot. He wanted to look good in the people's eyes. And he was allocating money for them to do, uh, you know, to rebuild. However, suspicion began to fall on Nero as the man behind the fire. And again, there's all kinds of conspiracies about this. But there were suspicions that he was the one that, that started the fire, or at least in, instigated it, I should say. And in order to divert attention from himself, he placed blame for the fire on the large Christian population which was, which was living in Rome. And they were already hated. The Christian population was already hated by the general population because of their stand for Jesus. Church historical tradition from our church fathers inform us that it was right now at this time because of the Roman fire that Nero had the Apostle Paul beheaded. The Apostle Paul died then in AD 64 under this Christian persecution that Nero instigated because of the fire of Rome. A few days later, maybe in a few months later possibly, not exactly sure, they caught Peter. And because Peter was a Jew, they crucified him. And as they were crucifying him, Peter, of course, said, please, crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord. So Peter died upside down on the cross. And it was under Nero that our two, these two great apostles were sent home to heaven. 
They were falsely accused, of course, martyred, and thus began a long persecution of God's people in some horrendous ways, all the way from being thrown to hungry lions in, a, in, the, in the Roman, Roman Colosseum, to being slaughtered by the gladiators, to being dipped in tar and ignited like candles to light up Nero's garden at night. All kinds of horrendous things were done to these Christians. The Apostle Paul writes here in 2 Timothy, so understand the context of that, of Timothy, that Paul was facing death under Nero. He writes this to Timothy. And I like, I put it in the King James here just because I I thought this was kind of neat. The way the King James puts it is just beautiful. He says, Paul says, Whereunto I am appointed a preacher, Timothy, and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able, that is, Jesus is able, to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Now again, you and I may not be scholarly apologists, and that's really not that important, but we must be fully convinced that Jesus is who he says he is and must fully believe in what he has done through the cross and through the empty tomb, through his death as well as his resurrection. And even though a good portion of the world believes in reincarnation, we will stand firmly that we believe in resurrection because that's what Jesus has accomplished for us. The Apostle Paul had come to know that he knew that he knew that he knew that he knew that Jesus was his everything. And Jesus was his only hope of glory in heaven. Colossians 1.27 says that. We might look at that another time. Where this, the great mystery of the ages, God, which God kept hidden, but now revealed that in Christ, dwelling within us, is our hope of glory, our eternal glory. Paul said that he is the one we, we, we proclaim. In other words, He is the center, loved ones, of all that matters. Jesus is the... And what is unusual today is that in a lot of churches, the name of Jesus is never mentioned. That is just amazing to me. In a lot of churches, Jesus is never mentioned anymore. And He is the center of everything that God has for us. He is the one that everything revolves around. Creation. Any wisdom we have, salvation of our souls, redemption of our bodies, all the glories of eternity are because of Jesus. And Paul tells Timothy, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I know him. I'm convinced of him. I'm committed to him. I've entrusted everything I am to him, everything I've done to him. I have entrusted my life, my body, my character, my testimony, my life's labor of honoring for God, uh, my loving my family, of loving my neighbor, of loving God's church. Everything I am, that's what Paul is saying, everything I am and everything I've become, everything I've done, every precious thing to me, I've entrusted to him to hold for me, if you will, in escrow to hold it there for me, to tip the scales in my favor on the great day of judgment. But once that great day is such a special day to us, isn't it? Paul just refers to it as the day. And that's what the early Christians did. That day with like a capital D, that special day. It's a precious, it's a, it's a terrifying day if you don't know the Lord. It's terrifying. 
If you don't know Jesus Christ, it's a, if you haven't committed Jesus you uh, to Him in your life, it's a terrifying day. It's a day of God's wrath and judgment. A horrendously terrible day beyond description. The worst day of a person's life will be that day um, as they are called to give an account of how they used the life that God gave them, how they used it. They will be reminded of all they have done against God and all the times God called to them, reaching out to them, to reach out, you know, for them to, to, to receive His love and to love Him back. There'll be no excuses. And they'll be faced with everlasting separation from God and facing eternal punishment. But loved ones, for those who love Jesus Christ, those who Jesus means everything to, hey, this is going to be a great day of celebration, being evaluated for uh, your surrender to His Lordship. You know, I was sharing with the boys during Sunday school today. I said, guys, it's going to be, that'll be a great day we stand before Jesus if we love Him. Because we're already guaranteed eternal life. I mean, that's why we're on, we're on, we're on the, the side of His right hand. We're going to have eternal life. But now he's going to do something even more. He's going to evaluate our lives and say, you know what? I remember. I remember when you were all alone and you sacrificed for me and nobody even knew about it. But you did it in my name. I'm going to reward you for that. He rewards us for all the things that we have done for him. Whether they're known or whether they're unknown. Amen. What a day that's going to be a special day. <laughs> special, special day. And so, my dear friends, this is why it's absolutely necessary for you to come to the conclusion in the rejection of all the ways that the world has of trying to reach God and what the devil says, how we ought to find God, and make heaven your home by being fully convinced that... that you must come to this deep-seated conviction of this. And you've heard me mention it before. That Jesus isn't the best answer to life. He's the only answer to life. He's the only one that answers the puzzle of life. Amen. Father, as we leave today, as we leave, help us to see the seriousness of our faith. Oh God, on that great day when we face you, we, wanna, we don't want to hear those words that I never knew you. And you've given us that opportunity now that we know you through our faith, through our responding to your reaching to us. Lord, you have responded, you have reached out to us time and time again. And we must respond back to you in surrender and in belief and in trust and faith and surrendering our all, our everything, Lord. Then we entrust our everything, all of our labor, all of our work, all of our motives, all of our, all of our forgiveness, all of our apologies, all of our repentance, everything. We entrust our lives, Lord. We need to see that that is imperative. We do that, that we are convinced that Jesus is Lord. And that nothing compares to you. Nothing compares to you. We are convinced in it to the point that we're willing to even face death, face persecution, face hardship, face jail, Lord, for standing up for Jesus, for standing up for the truth. Face the truth. To face the, the, the wrath of this, this culture of ours. 
So Father, we pray today that, that we will be like Paul and like the Apostle Peter, that we will be convinced deeply in our hearts and so convinced that we are determined nothing will turn us back. And that we're not growing dumber, but smarter. And that Jesus is not growing dimmer or fainter, but brighter in our life. This is our prayer. This is our hope. I pray you will examine and see our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together, everybody. The Lord bless you. And I'll be praying for you this week that you will be able to stand firm and walk tall and walk forward in the light.